Welcome back to The Good, The Bad and BPD. My name's Tammy Mortland and today's episode is about being in denial and my story after my diagnosis. And I've got to just say, I didn't realise until somebody told me that you can hear Luna snoring in the background and that's probably because she's outside of me under quilt right at this moment in time, scratching a tab. So yeah, if you hear me dog, it's because she's constantly up my arse and I can't get rid of her. So I was very much in denial about my mental health, about something that was going on at work. So I did what I always did, tried to Google myself better. And when I Googled things about BPD, it was mostly all negative. Like web page after web page, uh, People with BPD find it hard to have lasting relationships. People with BPD struggle to find suitable, sustainable employment. I mean, it did say that BPD can be managed, but it takes years of therapy. (laughs) And I didn't want to do years of therapy. I wanted a quick fix. I just wanted to be accepted by society as normal whatever normal is, you'd have thought I would have learnt my lesson from, like, previous Google searches. (laughs) But back then, nothing anybody could say or do would make me feel less crazy, sad or unloved. And my denial consumed me back then. Instead of taking time to reflect on my diagnosis and how I could potentially help myself... I just wallowed in my own self-pity. Although I had very good reason to, which will be explained next episode, I just, yeah, wallowed in my own self-pity. And I can admit that back then, I was afraid of the stigma attached to mental health issues. Like, people with mental health issues are crazy, aren't they? That's what I'd always been told growing up. And I also, back then, thought that therapy wouldn't work for me. Like, although I was and still am a walking BPD handbook and I'd done all that Google research, like, nothing really, like, stuck in my brain about helping myself. It was only the bad stuff. Saying that, back then in 2015, there were no online articles about how to be successful in life if you've got BPD, how to manage your emotions and relationships, you know, like helpful, useful information. Your only option back then, like under the treatment section of the NHS, were medication and therapy. And you either had to sit in a group and talk about your problems or one-to-one with a therapist and talk about your problems. And I'd obviously tried the medication, I didn't want it. So I opted for talking therapy one-on-one because at this point in my life, I couldn't stand to be around anybody, let alone a group of people, like especially people I didn't know. All the dots will connect up next week. And this ain't no kids, Dr. Dot. We a cute cat sat under a rainbow end. Oh, no, it's not. But yeah, group therapy was a no-go. Why would I want to sit and talk to a bunch of strangers about my problems? They don't care about my problems, just like I don't care about their problems. When I was as low as I could possibly be, I can honestly say that I didn't care about other people's problems. 
Like, even if their problems were the same as mine, in my brain, my problems were worse than everybody else's. After my diagnosis, I was going out every weekend. And like I mentioned last week, Tammy and alcohol don't go well together. <laughs> and because I was drinking so much, my rage got worse. I'd fall out with people on a night out if they bumped into me, said something or even looked at me the wrong way. But I actually got knocked out by a bouncer once for gobbing off and he dropped me like a sack of shit and ow, I did not get brain damage beyond me. <laughs> I thought I could out drink and out dance my problems and my denial and my mental health would just go away if I pushed it down and drank enough. <laughs> so town became my second home, like you'd never seen anybody chuck back Jaeger and Sambuca like me. I were disassociating from my body daily. I were numb. I didn't think, I didn't feel anything. I blocked out everything from probably the last part of 2015 and I didn't want to remember or deal with it. It's taken me to do this podcast to face it, but back then, yeah, I felt worthless. It was a very dark and lonely time and all the pressure of buying my new house, having it renovated, the diagnosis, my breakup, work stuff, everything just got too much and I felt like my head was going to explode and all this stuff happened over the space of six weeks and Remember I said how my MD came with me to my diagnosis appointment? Well, he in my eyes was the only person who truly understood me at that time and of course he did. He'd listened to my life story, he didn't judge me. Spoiler alert. Never in a million years did I think that he would use my insecurities against me further down the line. <laughs> My friends and families couldn't grasp how or why I'd changed so quickly. Appearance-wise, attitude-wise, like we in the space of a year after breaking up with Guy and getting my diagnosis, I went down to just under eight stone and I think that's why nobody ever questioned it. It was just relationship and work stress to them. Like, that's why I'd lost so much weight. I was so skinny, though, you could see all my bones and... I ate a bowl of mashed tater and maybe a chocolate bar on a good day. And on a bad day, I'd live off a bag of Walker's salt and vinegar crisps. Not sponsored. I don't like any other salt and vinegar crisps. I only like specific Walkers. But, yeah, I could smash through at least four bags of crisps a day rather than eat actual food and had got no motivation to cook or to eat. I thought I could just starve me sent to death and I still have issues with food now. I've always had issues with food. I only eat certain types, certain colours. And I was, what, five foot? I'm five foot. I ain't shrunk. You're f I'm five foot six, and I, back then I weighed just under eight stone, I think it was. I looked very poorly. Can you imagine, though, how poorly I looked? I were in denial to everybody around me, and it didn't help me in the slightest. But can I blame family and friends, like... I was telling everybody I was fine, so they just took me at my word and we were that kind of family that if you said you were fine, you were fine, so don't ask again. It just felt like nobody was on my side and to be honest, they never have been. Like, even from being a kid, everything were always, Tammy, don't do this. Tammy, don't do that. Tammy, leave your brother alone. 
like it didn't matter how much I explained BPD to them they just didn't understand it back then and I don't think they understand it now but back then I finally had medical proof about my emotions and behaviour and they still didn't get toss to me and if they didn't believe it then why should I maybe I am just a dick what does a psychiatrist know anyway <laughs> she's not qualified is she my family's qualified but to them I were just angry Tammy who gobbed off because she was just like a mother that phrase used to rile me I hate anybody calling me mum like god help anybody who ever calls me mum because I will karate chop you so hard that your tash falls off even if you're female and my dad's side at family would say you're just like your mother it just wind me up and they'd do it on purpose so that they could bitch to each other that I'd lost my temper again, as per usual. And I'm sure at one point, talking about me or one of their hobbies, like because I'd always been the kid who upset a brother, the kid who caused a scene, the kid who were a fussy eater, <laughs> like the kid who refused to do certain things, and they just saw a grown-up, more angry version of that now. And instead of trying to explain diplomatically why I did certain things, I'd just get angry and defensive. And then they'd accuse me of using my mental health diagnosis as an excuse for my behaviour. But they'd never heard about BPD. So they just dismissed it because, to be fair, they'd never seen the paperwork. And when you've known someone for so long, and they've always been that way, like, you just presume that they're full of shit and making it up and they'd heard of depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, you know, all them big ones, let's say. And to friends and family, my diagnosis in their eyes gave me a reason to behave like a dickhead. Like I had an excuse. They didn't understand that that were actually my personality and I'd always been that way. And if I heard, oh, there's people out there that are worse off than you, or... You want to think you said lucky one more time. I would have tried to drown myself in my mashed potato. Like, I don't even know if you can do that. I don't even know if that's a possibility. But I would have tried to drown myself in my mash. So, I did what I was best at. Cut them out. Hardly spoke to them. And this was more to do with my boss than me. But more will be revealed next week on that. I just felt angry at the world for giving me this mental illness. And... I felt angry at my family for not supporting me with this or the other thing that were going on at work, which they had absolutely no idea about because they're not psychic. But in my defence, if I'd have broken my leg or got cancer or an illness or something that they could see, they'd be rallying around to support me. So why aren't they supporting me with my mental health? Being in denial for me were possibly the lowest few years of my life. I fell out with everyone and anyone just because I couldn't control my temper. I couldn't control my anger, I couldn't control my tone of voice, I couldn't control my facial expressions, and it'd get people's back up. Even now I get people's back up, but then I'd get defensive. And I just felt so sorry for myself. I spent most of 2015 either angry or crying. It was just so lonely being in denial, and you know when people say that they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel... Well, mine felt more like being trapped in a well. 
and I just couldn't pull myself out of it and I, I certainly couldn't see the light. It was just dark, cold and miserable and the house that I bought was five minutes away from work and I used to walk to work and if I saw a bus or a bin lorry or anything massive coming towards me, I'd imagine what it'd be like to throw myself under it. And then I'd convince myself that nobody would in fact care if I were here or not. I'd imagine scenarios in my head, uh, nobody turning up to my funeral and like nobody crying when they found out I'd died, things like that. And they were very vivid. Like I'd imagine different ways I could potentially end it all because I just couldn't cope with the feelings and the thoughts that were going on in my brain and in my body. I just wanted to feel normal and loved. I were in denial about absolutely everything in my life and I'm going to be honest, I've probably been in denial and self-pity mode for about four years after my diagnosis. It just became automatic. And it wasn't until the first lockdown that I actually managed to take time for myself and reflect and grow. But back then, I'd wake up in the morning feeling like the world was against me and everything I wanted in life was impossible to reach. I was having a rape pity party for myself. <laughs> and looking back now, like I'm glad I liked myself enough to not give in to temptation, to not be here if that makes sense. Because that's what it's got to have been, like subconsciously. I must have liked myself enough. Or is it because I'm indecisive? There's that saying, isn't there? That old saying that you'll never hang yourself. And that's me. Like, I know a lot of people who haven't had the strength to carry on. And if you are one of those people and you are struggling at the minute, please don't ever feel like this world would be better off without you because it really wouldn't. And that means absolutely nothing coming from a manly voice through your headphones. But hear me out. In life... There is only one version of you, and that's your power. Like, don't let anybody ever take that away from you. There's only one version of you, and there will only ever be one version of you. Like, that's that makes you unique. And I didn't always feel that way. So trust me when I say it does get better. Like, if you've listened to the previous episodes, you're probably thinking, it can't get much worse for the poor girl. But it does. <laughs> oh, but but yeah, like I say, it don't get better overnight. It takes hard work and it's taken me nearly, f what, four or five years to pull myself out of that well. And being in denial didn't help me in the slightest because I pushed down who I really was rather than accepting it and learning how to live with it rather than against it. Learning that I don't have to accommodate other people. Like, my feelings are valid, my thoughts are valid, and I shouldn't have to watch what I say or anything like that around other people. I shouldn't have to accommodate them. And in return, they really shouldn't have to accommodate me, but they should accept and understand that if I say something that's a little out of tone, I really don't mean it, and please don't get offended by it I always say that there's nothing worse than toothache other than mental illness like when toothache's bad it's bad and when mental health's bad it's bad so think about the worst toothache that you've ever had in your life and I'm gonna presume it's bad
So when you've got this toothache, at that time, could you think or could you wish it away? The Probably the truth is that you couldn't. You would have... You'd probably have to go and do something about it, like take paracetamol or visit a dentist. Like, it, it, that kind of toothache doesn't magically disappear or resolve itself without help. And the same goes with mental health. Like, you can't wish it away. You can't think it away. You've got to do something about it. Once I accepted my BPD as part of who I was, like, the embarrassment got less the more I started talking about mental health and discussing my feelings when I felt them. And I talk about mental health now with everybody. Like, if you don't want to hear it, tough shit, I'm going to tell you. I'm like a vegan pushing all my knowledge on you. <laughs> I'm only joking. I don't want to offend any vegans on this show. <laughs> but, yeah, I've learned a lot over the last year or so that... I've learned over the last year or so to never push my feelings down again and pretend that they don't exist. Because my feelings are important. I also write a lot of lists. These help unclutter my mind and help me solve problems and get things done. And accepting my BPD as part of me was probably one of the scariest things I've ever done. But one of the best, because it allowed me to finally accept who I was. Doesn't mean I 100% like who I am, but I am working on that. Like, out of a month now, I probably only have, what, three to four days where I feel like the world's against me. And that is a big step from every day and... I have to accept that the little steps are just as important as the big steps. So if I only manage to get out of bed, go in shower and brush my teeth on a certain day, then I've done a great job. And in the words of Jess Glynn, don't be so hard on yourself. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions or just need to know that somebody's there, feel free to get in touch and next week... We are going to be talking about something that's very personal to me and there's only a handful of people in my life that know about this. But it's extremely important to share because it can and does happen to more f- people than you think. And next week's episode is called The One Who Ruined My Life and it's my personal story about emotional grooming. So you can either skip it or you can listen to it. But I'm giving you a trigger warning ahead of next week's episode. So thank you for listening to The Good, The Bad and The BPD. I'm Tammy Mortland. Have a lovely day.